You, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. Uh, we'll get there in, in a little bit. But um, just wanted to uh, give you a quick update on Heather. Uh, the one thing Heather wants you to know is that she's climbing trees. Uh, <laughs> literally, that's why she told me to tell everybody I'm climbing trees. And what she meant by that is um, uh, she's doing very well physically, uh, much better this time than the last time around with the cancer treatment. And the climbing trees reference is to the fact that one of the new things they've added is an exercise kinesiologist. And he's got her doing all kinds of weird exercises to get um, uh, things moving in the body the, the right direction. And so after I left Arizona, she was climbing trees uh, at his direction. So that's, I've never seen my wife climb a tree before. So. But anyway, um, most likely she's going to be there through the end of February. And um, I, I don't know at this time I'm going to go back out there, um, but uh, we'll see. So I'm looking forward to preaching today on the topic of, of joy, and um, um, the reason that I want to preach on this topic is, is something I've been working on for quite a while. I want to explain how this came about. So last spring when Heather and I came back from Arizona, there was a, a surface calm in the church. Um, I, it felt like I was the captain of a sailing ship on calm seas. Uh, Mark Fisher likes to remind me that, that I mentioned that peace and calm and the fact that it was only about two weeks later that uh, there was not as much peace and calm. Um, some of you know that um, by the summer, uh, we had our hands full. Simultaneous to that, uh, Heather's cancer markers began to creep up during the summer. Now, I'll, I'll say something that uh, is fascinating to me, and you might find this interesting too. We, when we went out uh, to Arizona, we met with three doctors for about an hour and a half on our first day there, and about 10 minutes into this long interview, they, they asked this question. They said, since you were here in the spring, have you either had the COVID shot or had COVID? And uh, she said, yes, I have. And they said they have found that whether you have the COVID shot or COVID, it doesn't matter. It's the same, that if you've, if you've had cancer, there's a 700% greater chance you're going to have recurrence. Um, there's a connection there between COVID and cancer. There are some other factors that they identified as to why her cancer markers were going up as well. Um, but the upward trend in her numbers continued into the fall. Um, and the, 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 the things going on that, that many of you know about were uh, also getting um, more and more tense. And so things peaked on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. That was the day that we found out definitively through a CAT scan that Heather's cancer was back. Uh, needless to say, uh, pie and praise that night was food for my soul. That is an unforgettable pie and praise for me listening to those testimonies. I was hanging on every word of every testimony that night. Uh, God in his providence um, had an opening in the clinic. Um, that when we, and so we left on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Now, now here's my point. This is where I'm, I'm driving with all this. We spent 32 hours in the truck driving to Phoenix, Arizona, 
And it was during that drive that I realized to my shame, this is to my shame, that I had zero joy. Zero joy. This concerned me because we Christians are to be the most joyous of all people. There is nobody that's supposed to have more joy than a Christian, and it doesn't matter what your circumstances are. So I made a decision on the way out that I was going to spend my time. I thought at that time it was only going to be three weeks. It ended up being eight weeks in Phoenix, and I wanted to take every week some time to study the topic of joy and what the Bible has to say about joy. So every week for eight weeks, I spent time on this topic. And what I learned is that joy is actually a bit of a complicated subject. Did you know that? So, for example, what is joy? Can you define joy? And I'm going to give you a, you're going to not like this, but I'm not going to define it today. I'm going to say that for another sermon. But um, what is joy? How do you get joy? How does joy interact with all the other circumstances in life? Um, and all this sort of stuff. And so uh, this is going to be the first of two or three sermons on, on joy. Now, to be quite honest, given the current state of things, uh, me being here, my wife being 2,300 miles away, I am sick with sorrow. And I mean literal physical illness, sick. There's nothing wrong with sorrow. That's a common part of the human state affairs. And so the question I want to try to answer today or attempt to answer is how can one have joy in the midst of sorrow? I imagine this is a, a question that many of you ask at one time or another, isn't it? This, this hits right at home. You've asked, I am called to have joy, but how can I have joy when my marriage is in shambles? When my children have turned their back on God, or how can I have joy when my friend hurt me so bad, or how can I have joy when my spouse is suffering with a disease, or how can I have joy when I just lost my spouse, I unjustly lost my job, is it possible to have joy? Is, is the, the Bible's teaching on joy just a pipe dream? I'm sure many of the people have asked those kind of questions, and the reason I say it is because it is a natural question. Because all of us experience all, all of these regularly. Sad, painful, disappointing, frustrating, damaging realities come into our human lives more or less regularly. Sometimes they're big, sometimes they're small, but no human goes very long in this world without something happening in which we would call sorrowful, painful, or disappointing, right? And it's just as true that virtually everyone, some more frequently than others, experience moments that make us happy and cheerful, pleased, content, satisfied. And when you look at people's lives and you see their experiences, for some, pain is more dominant, isn't it? We, we have some really good friends up in northern Wisconsin who, um, when I went to pastor at that little church in 2006, life was good. Within a couple months, I watched this family suffer 12 years of one thing after another, losing um, both of them. He was, he was my age. He was 54 when I went up there. 
Um, he both lost their health, both lost their um, financial security. And it was just one thing after another, and it seemed like there was not a break. And yet, I would look and see other people where it just seemed like every time um, they, they turned a corner, it was bright and sunny, and something new and great and bold was happening, and, and it was wonderful. And so, so for some people, pleasure is a dominant uh, experience of their life. But it is natural, and, and in fact, it's inevitable that we experience both whatever the proportion is. So the answer to the question, everybody obviously knows, is yes, you can have joy. You can have an abundance of joy. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 10. And I just want to pull out one little phrase in that verse. Paul says that they are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How is it and there, here's my question today. How is it that we can have joy and sorrow at the same time? They just seem so opposite, don't they? They do seem opposite. They seem incompatible. Well, when you examine joy and you examine these things, you know what you find out? The, the way that they coexist has to do with their source. In other words, sorrow and joy can be concurrent because they come from different sources. So let's just think for a minute, what is the source of sorrow? What are the sources of sorrow? Well, sorrow comes from events and circumstances. If you've read your Old Testament, you, you're familiar with Genesis 47.8, where Jacob said that Rachel's death produced sorrow in his heart. The, the psalmist said in 16, uh, Psalm 16.4 that sorrow hung over his life when he was uh, persecuted by people. Jesus was described as a man of sorrows, right? In Isaiah 53. In Romans, Paul said that he had great sorrow and anguish of heart because his Israelite brothers had not received salvation and yet, at the same time, these same individuals said they experienced joy. Parents with unsaved children, let me tell you something. It is okay to experience sorrow over having an unsaved child. In sorrow, the heart becomes heavy and downcast. Um, what, what is sorrow, by the way? What is it? it it's an emotion. The source of it is adverse circumstances. Just as sickness, separation, personal loss, and even sin, these things can cause sorrow, can't they? Can't they? Since sorrow is an emotion based upon life circumstances, you know what that means about sorrow most of the time? And this is a good thing it's not permanent. Isn't that wonderful? It's not permanent. And so the events around us can result in happiness. They can bring us to tears. And they can bring on a whole range of other emotions because most of these are tied to circumstances. 
And I will say one more time, our circumstances are a product of the providence and sovereignty of God Almighty. But I really want to focus today, this is what I'm most excited about, is what is the source of joy? What is the source of joy? Well, I want you to read some verses with me. And the first few verses, just look on the screen because I'm going to go rather quickly. We'll come to some more passages I want you to read with me. But um, first one, Psalm 37, verse number four. Everybody's familiar with this. And most people get it wrong, what it means. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, how do most people interpret that verse? <laughs> you know, it's no secret that if somebody wants to gift me a um, brand new Corvette, I will accept it. <laughs> is, that what, is that what that verse means? If I, if I delight myself in the Lord, when I come back from Israel in nine days, I'll, ten days, I'll find a Corvette in my driveway? One could only wish, right? <laughs> How about another verse? Psalm 32, verse number 11. This gets a little bit more specific. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Now, I want you to notice something. There is an emotion tied to joy in the, the, the um, source. Be glad where? In the Lord and shout for joy. Rejoice, right? It's kind of telling us a little bit, isn't it? Psalm 90, verse number 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Why? That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And so God, when we're satisfied in the love of God... And that can only happen if you're a believer. Then you will rejoice and be glad. How many of your days? So that means that even when my um, disappointing Cowboys lose the playoff game, I can still rejoice in the Lord. I'm not rejoicing in Dak Prescott or anything else, but I am rejoicing in the Lord. By the way, I got to say this, I think y'all are much more spiritual than my previous church, because every time the Packers beat the Cowboys, my, tech, my phone blew up. And all you Commanders fans, uh, thank you for not blowing up my phone. Now we'll get back to our regular scheduled message. <laughs> Psalm 16, verse number 11, you make known to me the path of life. What is the path of life, by the way? Salvation. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is what? Fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In these verses, it is clear that God satisfies his children. And the, the byproduct of this satisfaction is rejoicing, is it not? That's the byproduct of what God does to each one of you individually. These verses don't say, yeah, to Christians in general. It doesn't say to the church in general. It's speaking to individuals. Me, not us. Me. That's a wonderful, wonderful Old Testament promise. But let's think about how Jesus describes it. Turn to Matthew 13 with me. Matthew 13. I want to show you how Jesus describes 
um, the satisfaction that we find in the Lord. It's very important for you to see how Jesus connects joy to being a Christian. Matthew chapter 13, verse number 45. Verse number 45 says this. He's telling a parable. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. And what is he searching for? Pearls. And he finds one pearl of great value. Just one. And what did he do when he found that one pearl of great value? He sold everything that he had. Everything. And bought it. Christ is the pearl of great price. Christ is to be treasured more than all the wealth that you could amass over all your years of working. Christ is more valuable than any windfall that you're going to get, any career satisfaction that you get, any family satisfaction that you get. They pale in comparison to what occurs in a Christian's life when you find Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Verse number 44 says that Christ brings so much joy to those who receive salvation that they'll completely sell out to him. Completely. By the way, I think this is what in Revelation, when the church of Ephesus, he says, you've lost your first love. They, they're, they're so busy with the day-to-day things of the Christian life that they forget that joy. They forget what Christ did and how that they were wholeheartedly worshiping him. So, so um, only God can bring lasting satisfaction and joy. We were made to find our joy in God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, everybody knows this, I think. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do what? All to the glory of God. All of it. All of it is God-centered. All of it is focused on God. Um, Psalm 16.11, I read that already. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So do you want to find pleasure? Do you want to find joy? Do you want to find um, satisfaction that cannot be comprehended? Then seek God. For he satisfies the longing soul. In the hungry soul, he fills with good things. That's what God does. He, he fills that longing for satisfaction that we have in our hearts. All popular music, um, all artists that are popular at one time or another sing songs and write songs about finding satisfaction in a person, in a thing, or, or whatever it happens to be because the universal Human longing is to find satisfaction, and that is an eternal longing that can only be satisfied by God alone. When God created us, he created us with that hunger and thirst. And the the depth of this desire for joy and this desire for satisfaction that there is so great that there is only one way to be satisfied. Do you believe that? Do you practice that? The reason I ask that is 
Most people don't. Turn to Jeremiah chapter number two. Jeremiah chapter number two. I want to show you a very interesting little phrase in a verse in Jeremiah chapter number two. Most people seek to find satisfaction and joy in not God. Notice what God said. God said from, in verse number 13, for my people have committed two, what's the word he uses? Evils. They have forsaken me, that's the first thing, the fountain of living waters, they have forsaken me. And the second thing that they did is they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That is the universal human condition. Humanity, unsaved humanity, universally and completely seeks satisfaction in not God. And God labels this evil. Think about the word evil for just a minute. When we use the phrase, that's an evil person, what are we saying? We're saying that person is really, really bad. Aren't we? We are. That's an evil person. They're just an evil person. Saddam is saying, whoever else, we, all, we always say Hitler. Anybody we don't like, we say, oh, yeah, they're like Hitler. So uh, We understand that. We say a person's evil. Evil in the Bible, by the way, if you want to know a definition of evil, evil is always placed in opposition to good. Almost universally in the Bible, evil and good are placed at opposites. So any object, any pursuit, any person or anything else in the world that we pursue for satisfaction and joy is evil and it's also a broken cistern. And I love the imagery here. God said that he is the fountain of living waters. Now, you know what living waters is? In the Old Testament, they, they had rules for what constituted living water. Living water was fresh. If you're going to Israel with me, and you have gone with me before, you know this. Living water is always moving water. Water that sits in one place becomes stagnant. Water that moves is not. And so living waters is fresh water. And so that's God, the fountain of living waters. And the fountain indicates that it's, it's continual. It's always coming. The water's always coming to refresh. And instead of, oh, hey, this nice fountain of living water, oh, there's this cistern over here with stagnant water and the water level's going down and it's going to disappear. And that's what happens to everything that you try to find joy in that's not God. It appears like it's going to be okay, right? Hey, this is pretty cool. And then you start partaking in it, and you find out the water's not fresh, and then pretty soon it's gone. There's no satisfaction in it. Now, I don't know um, how many of you are um, familiar with cisterns. My guess is that the younger you are, the less familiar with cisterns you are. I, I lived in central Illinois growing up in middle cornfields. Our well literally was 22 feet deep. We were surrounded by cornfields. I am quite certain I ingested a lot of nitrogen when I was a kid and I didn't know it. But that well, every single summer, would go dry. Every single summer. And um, we, had, we had a water tank. 
um, a big water tank that was truck mount. And when I turned 16, uh, my job in the summertime while dad was at work was to go, uh, I don't know if they do this here in Virginia, but in Illinois at the base of the water towers, they'd have a, a water um, unit and you could put quarters in, give you like 100 gallons of water or something like that. And we would fill that tank, go back, and I would dump it in the cistern. And sometimes I'd open that cistern and there were frogs. I'm not talking about live ones. <laughs> and so we would, put the, we would put the water in there. The cistern always leaked, always leaked. You, you never filled the thing because it was going to be completely empty within a couple days. But the rule was you don't drink the water. We would go somewhere else and get water for drinking. That was only for bathing and other things like that. That, that's a cistern. That's the difference between a fountain of living water and a cistern. And everything that is not God, everything that is not God is a cistern when we're seeking satisfaction for it. I want to show you another uh, biblical picture of satisfaction. Turn to Isaiah chapter number 12. Isaiah chapter number 12. In, in this chapter, um, Isaiah is, is promising future salvation future salvation and this is what he says verse number 12 or uh, chapter 12 verse number 2 God is my salvation I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord my God is my strength and my song he has become my salvation so this is talking about salvation look at the very next verse with what joy I will draw Water from the wells of salvation. What is God? When God saves you, he endows to you an, an eternal well of salvation that can never, of joy, I'm sorry, that can never be drawn dry. Isn't that a wonderful picture of satisfaction in God? Um, what, is, what is that well of salvation, I guess, is the question I want to ask. What is that well of salvation? I've got a lot of scripture. This is not an expository sermon per se. This is a topic. I'll turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. By the way, if you're visiting with us, normally I take passages. I preach through them. I'm only here for one Sunday right now. And uh, so we're, we're doing a, a topic. But um, um, John chapter 4, many people know this chapter. Jesus is traveling from Jerusalem up to Galilee. He goes through Samaritan territory. He stops in Sychar, which is the location at that time of Jacob's well. Jacob's well. And he speaks to a Samaritan woman. He's having this conversation. In verse number 10, he says, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you what? Who's the source? of this. Jesus Christ, look at verse number 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus promises that in salvation, we will be completely satisfied when we seek him and seek him alone. Isn't that wonderful? 
putting the Old Testament and New Testament verses together, we see that God is teaching that Christ and Christ alone is the source of true and lasting satisfaction. Pursue Christ. Do you want joy that dominates and perseveres even during the most difficult times? Then make God the center of your pursuit of joy. Pursue Christ and never thirst again. Now, I have a question for you. Is joy guaranteed? What is the guarantee about joy? Do you find joy by pursuing joy in and of itself? The answer is no. You find joy by pursuing God. But it's even more important than that. And I want you to see this. Turn to Psalm chapter 4, verse number 7. By the way, I, I do want to say this. I'm, I am literally just giving you a tiny sliver of the verses to back up each thing I'm saying here. Okay. Uh, or that didn't sound right, not back up. But I'm giving you a tiny sliver of what the Bible says. That's a better way of putting it. Just a tiny sliver. Psalm chapter 4, verse number 7. Here we see that joy is a gift from God. You have more, you have put more joy in my heart than they, when they have their grain and wine abound. Who is doing the action here? God. God is doing the action. And that is why the Bible says that the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Because at salvation... There is joy placed in your heart by the God of the universe. Think about what that means. You as an individual, you as an individual, at your moment of salvation, God had preordained that he was going to stick joy right in your heart. Didn't get much better than that, does it? Uh, um, uh, and, and you look at what it says, you have put more joy in my heart than other people when they win the lottery, right? When, when uh, grain and wine abound. There is no good fortune in this world. I, I gotta say this one more time. This is so important. There is no good fortune in this world that can give you more satisfaction and more joy than what God gives. None, none whatsoever. I love the language of Psalm 36, the author's talking about the storms of life and those who seek shelter in him. And he says in Psalm 36 and verse number eight, feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. When you're in the midst of the storms of life, you seek shelter in God and you will feast on the abundance of the household of almighty God. And you will drink Listen to what it says. You will drink from what? The river. The river of delights. It's not a stream. It's not a creek. It's not a water bottle. It's a river of delights. God, at your salvation, gives you a river of eternal de delights. Here we are. We're living in the wilderness. We're awaiting the promised land. 
And God says that even in the wilderness, you can drink from the river of his delights that he supplied. And by the way, there's a, there's a picture of it in the Old Testament. If you remember when the children of Israel are traveling through the wilderness, they stop at Mount Sinai. And if you've seen pictures of what it looks like around uh, the, the, where they believe Mount Sinai was, the location, it is a barren, we would call it a desert, they call it a wilderness. And they struck the rock and a literal river that could feed or uh, feed two million people and their animals came out of that rock. And the New Testament is very clear that that rock was none other than Jesus Christ. There's a literal picture of a spiritual principle right there. We're living in the wilderness. And when we find God, and we seek our satisfaction in God, we drink rivers of what? Not water. Not water. Delights. We drink rivers of delights. And the only way that you can drink a river of delight is to be in his word, meditating on him, learning and thinking and praising and worshiping him. And those are the delights that each one of us has. Now I want you to turn to one last passage and then I'm going to start wrapping everything up. Turn to 1 Peter chapter number 1. 1 Peter chapter number 1. Peter wrote his first epistle to Jewish Christians who were scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. They were driven from their homeland they were, they were poor, they were destitute, they were despised, but Peter wrote them to remind them of their joy. Remember, these people are in abject, utter poverty. And he says this in verse number three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his mercy, what did he do? He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So he caused us to become alive and move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And then what happens when you switch kingdoms? You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you where God's throne is and we're being kept by God's power we're being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. The, f- the whole fullness of everything that God is going to give us does not appear in the wilderness. It appears when we inherit the kingdom of God in, all of it, in, the, etern- in the eternal state. But it gets, it gets better. Verse number next. I don't know what verse it is. I don't have verse numbers here. In this you rejoice. What do we rejoice in? They are to rejoice in the eternal inheritance that awaits them. But look, is life a bed of roses? No, he says, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been uh, bothered a little bit. Is that what it says? Grieved. Grieved by trials. Various trials. No matter what your earthly circumstances are, God is actively keeping an inheritance for you. Not Christians in general. You, dear Christian. 
you. So that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, those tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. What do you do? You look at what he does. He compounds it. You rejoice with joy. It's joy, 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 joy. And he's emphasizing that it's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you see that? What is Peter saying? That even though you endure grievous trials, difficult and hard, that grind away at your spiritual life and your physical strength and your energy, you can still rejoice. But it's not any kind of rejoicing. It's rejoicing that is inexpressible and full of glory. These are wonderful promises, aren't they? But what does it look like, practically speaking? You ever wondered that? I read over 1,500 pages of biographies while I was there. And I want to share just a couple of the biographies, a little bit about them, little snippets. Uh, these, these biographies um, were, were geared towards pastors and, and missionaries. And so uh, th- this is, th- these were just a snippet, and I could, I could choose any number of ones. Th- these were, I've always heard about these people, and I'd never read about them until while I was there. One of them, his name is Charles Simeon, okay? I need to get me a suit like that, get a, and then on the elder board, I'll look like that guy. So. But wait until you see the picture of the next one. Charles Simeon, you've probably heard of the Charles Simeon Fund. Some of you may have. Anyway, Charles Simeon pastored the Trinity Church at Cambridge, England for 54 years. Simeon's life helps us see that persecution, slander, opposition, misunderstanding, disappointment, self-recrimination, weakness, and danger is often a portion of faithful Christian living, no matter who you are, pastor or not, and and faithful Christian living and Christian ministry. Back, you may not be familiar with that sort of church polity, but he was assigned to the Trinity Church in 1782. Guess what? His parishioners didn't want him. So he went back to um, whatever the people were, the... um, I can't remember what the guy's name was called or what his name was, actually. He said, they don't want me. And he basically looked at him and said, tough, that's where you're going. And so he went back. The first thing the congregation did in rebellion was to refuse to let him in for Sunday afternoon lectures. He gave Sunday act- he, was a, he was a seminary professor at Cambridge, and um, he had students come in. They locked the doors so he couldn't get in. When he started a Sunday night service, in which townspeople, people who were not members of the church, many townspeople came, the church warden came and locked the doors while people were stood waiting in the streets. The church members also locked the pew doors. I don't know if you've ever seen those old churches where the pews, you had a little door and you could get in. 
They locked the doors so that no one could sit in pews. The pew holders refused to let others sit in their personal pews. And so for 12 years, Simeon could only preach to people who could find a place to stand in the aisles. 12 years he did this while the people did that to him. Things settled out for a while. There were various trials, and then everything smoothed out. After he had been there for 30 years, he was faced with opponents again. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Most of the pastors in the United States who had been in a church for 30 years and see an upsurge in opposition would say, you know, I think the Lord's calling me to move on. Simeon didn't get that note. There was much more. He went on for another 24 years of fruitful ministry. There were other things that happened. He was, he was scorned by his colleagues, mocked by his colleagues. They broke out church windows and, and other things. But what I want to get to is the, the root of his endurance and the source of his joy was meditation on God. He had joy and he had endurance because his eyes were on the Lord. And this is what he said. He found, this is where he found his assurance. You ready? He found his assurance and his joy in the sovereignty of God in choosing such a one and the mercy of God in pardoning such a one, the patience of God in bearing such a one, and the faithfulness of God in perfecting his work and performing all his promises to such a one. And that is a testimony that all of us can give. You want to find joy you want to find endurance when life is hard, then remember what God has done for such a one as you and such a one as me. That's the graciousness of God, and it's in God that we find endurance and we find joy. Let me give you another one. I could spend a lot of time on this guy. I wrote about him in one of the devotions. It was after I, I read his biography. His name is John Payton. I need to get me a beard like that one. So... Um, I wouldn't have a wife left, but um, John Payton was a missionary to, and uh, I, there's two different ways to pronounce it. I'm going to call it the New Hebrides Islands. I don't know if that's correct or not. Uh, we, in modern day Vanuatu. It's out in the Pacific Ocean. It's closer to Australia than it is um, the northern part of the Pacific Ocean. He was a missionary to modern day Vanuatu for 41 years. Now, let me tell you something about that place. They warned everybody. This is, this is what they told John Payton when he's getting ready to go there. You will be eaten by cannibals. And the reason why is the first two English missionaries to arrive there in 1839 were killed and eaten by the cannibals within minutes of their arrival. That was the reputation of the place. On November 5th, 1824, John Payton and his wife Mary landed on the island of, of uh, Tana. And both his wife and his newborn son died four months later of a fever. You know, all the, the, the tropical fevers that, that are out there. He dug their graves with his own hands, and he served alone on the island until he was driven off after four years. Many times, he developed the exact same fever that his wife and his child had, and so he didn't even know if he was going to live his life was literally in danger from, from sickness and fever. One time he was, he was trying to get up a hill to safety. He was so sick he passed out and woke up um, 
hours later and finally was able to crawl to the top of the hill. He was so sick. But the most common danger that he faced on that island was the constant threat on his life. He moved from one savage crisis to another. He had no time for leisure, no time to unwind, and no refuge. He said that he slept with his clothes on and his dog by his side because the natives would try to kill him at night and his dog would bark and warn him and he would jump up and flee for his life. He would, he would throw himself between warring factions and argue for peace. He would visit his enemies when they were sick and he never knew if they were actually sick or it was an ambush. One native named uh, Ian came called Peyton to his sickbed, and as Peyton leaned over, uh, he pulled a dagger and held it to Peyton's throat. Another time, there was an attempt on his life, and this is what I wrote about in the devotions. They were looking for him. He climbed a tree. He spent 18 hours in a tree while they were warring and looking for him to kill him. And he said, I heard the musket shots, and he said, I was up in the top of that tree, and I felt like I was as safe as I was in the arms of Jesus. Now, how was he driven off the island? He was driven off the island after four years when the entire population rose against him because they blamed him for an epidemic. They surrounded him by the shore and they were standing around him arguing who was going to kill him when a ship came and rescued him from certain death. He went back to Australia and England, got remarried. He came back uh, a year or two later and went to a small island called uh, Aniva, and he was there for four decades. This island was seven miles by two miles. That's how small it was. Seven miles by two low. Four decades there. And he had extremely fruitful ministry. It is said that on um, the, uh, those islands, uh, those two islands where the missionaries were, that 90% professed Christ... And of those 90%, um, 60% of them are confessing evangelicals to this day, to this day. Now, what was the source of that endurance? It came from a certain kind of joy. Here, Here are his own words. This is what he said. He said, oh, that the pleasure-seeking men, and that should be men, I'll have to get that changed for the second service, um, men and women of the world could only taste and feel the real, well, there's another typo, joy of those, man, I'm usually really good at finding typos too, a real joy of those who know and love the true God, a heritage which the world cannot give to them, but the poorest and humblest followers of Jesus inherit and enjoy. In another place, he said, when will men's men's eyes be opened when the rich and learned renounce their shallow frivolities and go live amongst the poor, the ignorant, the outcasts, and the lost, and write their eternal fame on the souls by them blessed and brought to the Savior. Those who have tasted this, the highest joy, the joy of the Lord, will never again ask, is life worth living? Joy in the Lord gives you endurance, and it gives you strength during times of sorrow. Can sorrow and joy coexist? It certainly can. It certainly does. 
I'm going to close. One final illustration. I, I, read, I read an illustration that reminded me of some, an experience I had. Uh, my first youth ministry was in Hawaii. And um, I, was, I remember about Waimea Bay. This is Waimea Bay on the north shore of Oahu. I'm sure many of you have been to Waimea Bay. That, that rock that you're looking at is 25 feet tall. And that's definitely the summertime. I can tell by the size of the waves. In the sun, when I was a youth pastor, uh, it, was, it was really hard. I'd have these teen boys, Matt Berglund. Matt Berglund was 14 years old, 6 foot 3, 200 pounds. And he'd call me up and say, hey, Brother Jared, my dad's working today. Can we go surfing or go to Waimea Bay and, and jump off the rock and say, yeah. And so we, we would go to that rock. It's 25 feet to the water when, when you're on the, the one end there. And... Um, and we would jump off that rock, 25 feet. In the wintertime, the storms up towards Alaska kicked up the waves. And the waves, in, sometimes in December and January, and, and they would tell us when it's going to happen, the waves would reach 35 feet or more on that north shore, Waimea Bay. And I've been there in the wintertime when the waves towered over that rock, 25 feet. It, huge, massive waves hitting that rock, and the rock never moved. And the illustration is this. The storms and the sun are like the circumstances of life. Some days are sunny, just like that one, and some days are stormy. And the waves of circumstances Go over the rock of joy. The rock never moves. But sometimes the waves are so big, you can't see the rock, but you know it's there. And dear brothers and sisters, that's true joy in the Lord. Sometimes your days are sunny, and that inward joy bubbles out in the sunshine. And some days are so sorrowful that that joy is swallowed up by the storm, but the joy is still there. I'm going to leave you with this plea. Seek your satisfaction and joy in the God of your salvation. Lord, This was such a blessing to me to study, to be in your word. And I just, I just the only thing I know to say is I, I pray that this will encourage hearts and change minds and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen.